0: Lord, we thank you for your amazing goodness and grace to us. Father, we praise you for your son, Jesus Christ, and for his sacrifice on the cross for our sins. We will never get tired of reminding ourselves this eternal truth that at one time we were not your people, but now we are your people, not because we... Decided to do something about that, but because you, in your sovereign and eternal plan, determined to send your son in order to live, to die, to be buried, and to be resurrected. And so the righteousness that he earned would be ours to have. And so it's in this righteousness that we are privileged to approach you. And we pray for your word. We pray for our minds, we pray for our hearts, that you would open them up and that you would just pour in by the Spirit, what you have in store for us from Romans chapter 12. Oh, instruct us to respond to the gospel, to respond to our calling, to know what we must do, to know what church is supposed to do. Oh Lord, bless us teach each one of us individually and also together as a body, to please Christ in everything. We pray in His holy name. Amen. Well good morning, church. It's a privilege to stand here before you and to invite you to open God's Word with me as we look to be instructed and, and encouraged from the New Testament. I was asked to conclude the series we started a while back on God's purposes by focusing on the responsibility of church members. And I understand that some of you have been waiting for this sermon uh, more so than others because uh, you're probably thinking, you know, deacons is great, but maybe I'll never be a deacon, so maybe you weren't even listening. Um, Elders, man, that's, that's way beyond me, so... It's good for elders, but this is, this is where I want to be. This is what I want to listen to. And I just want to encourage you as we open up to Romans chapter 11, we'll begin in Romans 11, that you would pray right now, that you would pray to, to see yourself as part of the body and also to see what your responsibility is towards God first and foremost, and then th- towards the one who's sitting right next to you. Let's go to Romans chapter 12, and I want to read this passage. We'll begin with 11:33. Actually, Romans 11. We'll begin with verse 33, and we'll read through 12:13. Romans 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are your are His judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may know, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For, through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body and all members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, Each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, A, the very first section here, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, introduces a very important section of Paul's letter. If someone was to ask you to summarize the first 11 verses or 11 chapters, rather, of Romans, it would go something like this. Chapters 1 through 3, Because we sin, we lack God's righteousness. Moving on to four and five: In order to be justified, we receive God's righteousness by faith. Chapters six and eight. The theme is, by being transformed from rebels to followers, we demonstrate God's righteousness. We receive it and then we demonstrate. And then in chapters 11, or nine through 11, Paul then points to the saving of Jews, the future saving, where God confirms his righteousness. We don't have the time to survey the entire 11 chapters of Romans, but I appreciate the band who put a a song list together to prime our pump a little bit, focusing on the gospel. And it's going to be very important for us as we look and dive into chapter 12 to have the gospel drive this discussion. It is very important for us to remember that at one point we were not, and now we are. I remind you what Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that is us. In chapter 5, verse 1 Paul writes, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but God takes it upon himself to send Jesus who died, who earned righteousness, and by believing, we are then justified. But verse 6 takes a turn, and in chapter 6, verse 1, where Paul writes, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? And he concludes right there and then, may it never be. Those of you who have believed Jesus, those of you who can claim his righteousness cannot and will not continue in sin and abuse God's grace. And we read chapter eight, verse one, where Paul writes, therefore there is now no condemnation. You can bank on the righteousness of God. You don't have to walk in fear that somehow, somewhere, If you believed in God, that you might not be counted among the righteous. No, this promise stands firm. There is now no condemnation for those who believe. And he finishes up the entire section where we read in verse 33 of chapter 11. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Paul, explaining the gospel at the very end, says, this is amazing. This is great. The point of chapters 1 through 11 is all about God's mercy. How we who were far from God had no shot at attaining what he required, yet God initiates and sends Jesus. And he died, and he lives, and he dies. And he gives us his righteousness, we take it upon ourselves. That is amazing truth. So if you're in chapter 12, verse 1, therefore, Paul says, I want to urge you to do something. I want to plead with you. I'm going to ask you. I want to come alongside, literally. It means to just come alongside, put his hand on his shoulder and say, I want to talk to you about something. In light of what you studied, in light of what you read, in light of what we just sang here for the first half hour of our service, here's what's at stake. Here's what you need to do. Here's how you need to respond. And we won't go through the entire passage, verses 1 through 11, in great detail. I just want to survey these passages, these verses together and make three points. And as we do that, I want you to take away one thing here. And that is this. God's mercy and grace is the motivation for each member of Christ's body to live surrendered, serve humbly, and love genuinely. God's mercy and grace is the motivation for each member of Christ's body to live surrendered, to serve humbly, and to love genuinely. Let's look at chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, keep the gospel, as we think about this, to what? To present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. Although chapter 12 presents a slight transition in Paul's focus from practical doctrines now to the consequences of the doctrine. He's not saying anything new that he hasn't said before. In fact, if, if you look at Romans chapter 6, earlier on, Paul, Paul wrote to the church the, in the same fashion, focusing on the negative aspect of this presentation. And he writes in Romans chapter 12 or 6 verse 12 and 13 and he says, therefore do not, it's a command, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. In light of what Christ did, in light of what you have in Christ, do not go on presenting your members so you obey its lust, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness given the reality he says of your union with Christ you are dead to sin therefore do not present your body to sin your members of your body he said so so don't use your hands any longer to sin don't use your eyes any longer to sin don't use your ears don't don't use your mouth don't use your mind any longer to contemplate sin the members of your body. These instruments, the, the instruments of perception, all of your senses through which you take in information and interpret the world, he says, do not use them as instruments of unrighteousness, as instruments to sin. Now, now in, in chapter 12, verse 1, having presented the fuller picture now of, of God's mercy, Paul repeats and emphasizes. The obvious conclusion, in view of God's mercy. Most of us who are sitting here experience God's mercy. In view of God's mercy, present your bodies, the same instruments, right, that he touched upon earlier in chapter six, to God. To present means to to offer. To offer as a sacrifice. To surrender. It literally means to to come up and to stand ready to serve. Lord, I'm, I'm right here. You purchased me, so, so here I am. My feet, my hands, my eyes, my mind, my organs, everything that is about me is yours. Instead of using your bodies now to sin, uh, we are urged, we are mandated to, to lay at the altar to sacrifice. He's using that word here, living in holy sacrifice. You're not dead, you are alive to God Use your feet, right? Offer your your hands, your mouth, your, your ears, all the other organs of your body. Give them up for his glory, give them up for his renown, because I'm no longer mine. In view of his sacrifice of his son and your transformed nature, completely surrender up to God. Now, some of you might be sitting here and asking, why? Why is this response so radical? And he gives the answer right here because it's acceptable to God. This is the only kind of response that's acceptable. When you, when you use your body to glorify God and not yourself, it pleases Him. It, it, it's the only reasonable way to, to worship. He says that at the end of verse one it's the spiritual service of worship. This is really the the only way. Uh, Some of your translators and translations, it might have, which is a logical way of worship. This is the only logical conclusion. If you truly understand, right, those who truly understand the depth of their sin and the magnitude of the cross will logically conclude that complete sacrifice is the only kind of worship that is acceptable to God. If you're still Committing yourself halfway, that means you haven't read Romans 1 through 11 long enough and hard enough, and we haven't pondered the depth of what Paul is teaching us here. If you're still saying that just one hand, just part of me, I'll come and I'll do some things, but not, not everything, not my life, then begin with Romans 1, 1. And reread again, and remind yourself of God's great mercy, because that's what's on Paul's mind, by the mercies of God. Listen, nobody in the world will persuade you to obey God, but God in his mercy. You got to understand that. We got to believe that. For us to be gripped with this reality that God owns me, we got to understand the depth of the gospel. If we don't, We will not surrender. So Paul is saying, listen, this is the only way to worship. This is the only way to serve God. Now, verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. When we look at at verse 2, oh, how we're tempted to approach this text in terms of doing rather than thinking or being, right? Do not be conformed to this world. We read this and, and... We basically interpret it. Do not follow the pattern of this world. That's literally what it says. Do not be pressed into the mold of this world. And we say, okay, action. Um, What am I doing that resembles the pattern of the world? Let me take the inventory. I need to stop. Right? My action. What what, what am I doing? But look at the text here. Look at verse 2 again. How does Paul instruct us not to be conformed but be transformed? What does he target here? by the renewing of your mind it's all about your mindset it is all about your attitude behavior he says is superficial god wants to for us to look a little deeper not just doing but what are you who are you what are you thinking about so so we ask now what is the mindset of the world what is the mindset of the world? And, and I think Paul clearly explains the mindset of the world in chapter 1 of Romans. That he begins there. Why? In order to convict us all. Because Romans 1 through 3, the whole goal of Romans 1 two through 3 is to get us to a place where we realize, like we look up to God and we say, um, I, I'm done. There's no way that I, can, that I can claim my righteousness. I see what you're saying. And, and in Romans 1, Paul describes the worldly mindset And it is threefold, okay? Threefold. Number one, in verses 18 through 23, the world suppresses the truth about God. Uh, The world says things like, you know, I I like my way, I like my reason rather than God's. And so I I do not care about the truth of God. I like me. And therefore, I'm going to do me. That's number one. They suppress the truth about God. Number two, They prefer created things over the creator. That's what verses 24 and 25 says. Um, And say things like, I I like God's stuff, but I don't like you. I'm willing to breathe the air that you give, right? I'm willing to enjoy my wife and my kids that that you bless me with. I'm willing to enjoy my career, my work, and all of that. I like that stuff, but I hate you. That's what the world does. That's the worldly mindset. And number three... And this is probably the most damning, is that the world does not acknowledge God in anything. The world does not acknowledge God in anything. We exist because of God, right? We breathe because Jesus allows our lungs to expand and our hearts to beat. But do we acknowledge God? And get this, even as new Christians, even as Christians with new minds, we're guilty of this too. We sit here this morning and, and we're all guilty. If you woke up this morning and your body was not aching and you turned on your machine to brew coffee and you woke up your kids and your kids felt well, you walked outside and you felt the sun on your skin and you enjoyed God's creation, and in that moment, we did not acknowledge God's goodness. Wow, God, you're a great creator. At that moment, we did not acknowledge God. We have sinned and are conforming back to the pattern of this world. I mean, this is radical. We, we understand when we come together here to worship God, we're sinners. I am a sinner. That is why we sing these songs. That is why we go to scripture and we constantly, not just one time, but we constantly claim the righteousness of God. Why? Because even as believers, we sin this way. We don't acknowledge God in everything. We use his things without giving him praise, right? We're all guilty of this thing. I am guilty of this thing. Therefore, I need to come and confess and trust Christ because he died for this sin. So church, this is for us to encourage us and to bring us into great conformity with Jesus. How should we be transformed then? He says, by the renewing of your mind. Live surrendered by renewing your mind. It's not simply behavior adjustment. It's a mind shift. It's sort of a a spiritual brainwashing. You need to just be in here and remind yourself of the gospel and how your mind needs to be adjusted. And and it's interesting that Paul doesn't give us the how-to. He just says, you got to do it. But notice that he doesn't give us the way he doesn't get into the, the details of how to. He just says, renew your mind. We know how to do that, don't we? We know how to renew our minds. We preach to ourselves every day, right? We, we go to the Word. Hey, Tim, you need to go to the Word. Why? Because Tim needs to renew his mind. That's Why? through prayer. Renew your mind through prayer. Uh, renew your mind. When we come together and we sing worship songs, it's not just because it's on your bulletin to do, right, and to follow. The goal of that is to start thinking about the gospel, to start changing, for, for the war to start penetrating your mind, and so that you would be like, wow, Jesus, I thank you, and I want to worship you. That's why. That's why we sing. That's not, it's not just to fill time. Somebody can stand up here and preach for two hours, sure. We sing because it's important. We fellowship because it's important. Why? In Christian fellowship, when we hang out, when we talk, when we speak truth to one another, we, what, renew our minds in the gospel. But here's the point. Your mind dictates your action. Focus on your mind, the body will follow. That's how it works. You you never do stuff without first having to thought through it. Thought first. Then then more thought? Then something else. And there's like, you know what? I, I think I should do that. And Paul says, listen, you surrender yourself to God by renewing your mind. What is the result of having your mind renewed and transformed? You will prove and discern the will of God, Paul says at the end of verse 2. You will prove and discern the will of God. So get this Paul does not say that you will find or you will know the will of God right? That's not what the text says. The text says, so that you may prove what the will of God is. That somehow, as you renew your mind, you will find yourself in the will of God, doing the will of God. That's pretty amazing. One pastor said this, we always have this desire to find and and to capture and to hunt down the will of God. It's kind of like this mythological creature that has to be captured. It's like It's like finding, he says, oompa-loompa at the mall, right? And, And we go after the will of God. It's like it's somewhere here. If it's not in this store, then it's there, right? And so we're after it. We're after the will of God. But according to Scripture, he says, the will of God is not something that is found as much as it is something that is lived in because of a renewed mind. So this is pretty... Pretty amazing. So a renewed mind, which which interprets the world and your personal situation through Scripture, leads you into the will of God for your life. So you become to see, as Paul says, the good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. So that is the first encouragement here for us. Number one, we must, as members of Christ's body, In light of God's mercy, live surrendered to God by renewing our minds. Number two, in view of God's grace, serve humbly the body of Christ. Look what he says in verse three, four, through the grace given to me. I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. You know, what what seems like an abrupt transition to a totally different topic, the use of gifts, right, in the Christian community, it's actually a very smooth transition to deal with this constant temptation for the believers to think that somehow the gospel and the gospel community is all about us. It's all about me. Paul says, as you fix your mind in complete surrender to God, your body can now be used to serve the Lord and do great things for him, right? We can serve and worship God. that's, That's an amazing thought. And as we surrender, we begin to walk in the will of God, but he says, don't forget, brother, don't forget that what? It's not about you, that it's not about me. It's really not about us. When we come to church, we tend to think it's about us. It's about God's plan. It's about his purposes that are carried out both in redemption and sanctification and ultimately glorification, right? It's part of God's plan to to Place us in the body and to grace us with specific giftedness. All of us have something with God's grace, so that you can be what? According to this text, just one small, tiny part of a whole. And so, as you surrender to God, Paul says, I want you to think that you're just, you're very tiny. I'm very tiny. The the church is not ours, it's Christ, right? It was not established for us, it was established for Jesus, right? After all, church is the what? Bride of Jesus. It's not for us. The, The spiritual abilities and gifts we possess are not for our individual consumption, but for the building up of the church and ultimately for the glory of God. That's why. That's why you're here. You are here because of God's glory. You are here because you're one tiny part of a whole. Rome, uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. Don't need to go there. Let me just read it. I will remind you what Paul wrote to Colossians. And he said, he, referring to Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything definitely his body he is the head he is the first but so often we have this mentality that the church is about me the church is about us it's for us right and and we're big time and if i for whatever reason stop i don't know attending church if i stop sacrificing if i start stop giving then then the church is done and so we look at a church when we, when we even shop for the church or, or, or even here and, and we have this mentality sometimes to come in and, and to, to say, give me such and such or, or teach me such and such or, or let me have this post or, or here are my kids and you serve them, you, you, you take care of them and I will just watch you do it and if I don't like you, I will critique you, right? And, and so uh, if you don't do that, then, then I'm out and Paul says, listen, listen, um, I was given grace to tell you that, man, you're just small. We're just one small part of a whole. And Jesus dictates what takes place in the church. Don't don't think so highly of yourself, of your abilities, of your giftedness. Don't think that you are able to do everything that is spiritually required for yourself and for your family. I'll just read that again. Don't think that you're able to do everything that is spiritually required for yourself and for your family. You need me and I need you and we need each other to do what God has outlined in Scripture to do. And I think we forget that, right? Um, Think about this. Why do we end up in counseling for our marriage problems only when our marriage is on the brink of extinction? Why do we only seek for help then? Or, or, or we reach out in desperation to a pastor about our rebellious kids when, when we can no longer keep them in check. Or, or, or why do we have to be on the verge of destroying our lives, watching filth, before we actually realize that, man, I need help and I can't do this by myself? Why? Why? Because somewhere, somehow, on our journey, we, we thought that we can do it all. We think that we are equipped to do it all. We think that we don't need the body. We don't need each other. We say, I got this. I'm good. I'm okay. Only two, two or three or four months down the line, right, or a year or two in our marriage, we start knocking on someone's door and say, hey, If you don't help me out, I'm done. Why? Because we think more highly of ourselves. That's why. And Paul says here, I have grace to tell you, brother. He's encouraging. He's urging. Don't think this way. He says, not so fast. You're just part of a whole. You need others to live. Why? Number one, because God ordained you to be complete in the context of the body, not your individual self. Verse four, for just as we have many members in one body and all members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ. Because of God's mercy, we've been called out of darkness into the light, right, of the, of the sun, and now we are united to him. Being united, we are, what? We become a body of Jesus, consisting of many members. The body has many members, and according to Paul here in this verse, they don't all have the same function. They have different jobs. So my kids need to be exposed to other people in the body who can impact them in ways that I can't, that Marina can't. We understand. We need to. We think that, man, we got our kids. We just need to. We, we got this, right? God gave us our kids, and therefore we're good to go. But, but God says, no, Tim, Marina, I placed you in the body, and the body will will be a blessing to you because you can't do your own sanctification apart from the body, and they will be a blessing to your kids because you will miss something. You're not able to completely be a blessing to them. I mean, we all know that, right? Your nose functions radically different than your big toe. It's just how it is, right? If the minute your appendix takes over the function of the heart, Man, you're in trouble, right? We, we know when it comes to our body, we lose a finger, what do we do? We try to sew it back on to do what? The function of a finger. But in our church, somehow we, we, we tend to forget, and Paul just wants to encourage us. He wants to let us know that, listen, um, you were gifted, you were you were given a gift. How did you acquire this, this gift, Paul says? Look at verse three. For through the grace given to me, I now as an apostle tell you what to do. Uh, look at verse three towards the middle as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Look at verse six. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given, it is not yours You did not deserve it. You did not seek for it. God, in his sovereign plan, by the Spirit who regenerated you, in blessing you with salvation, gave you a deposit of a gift, of ability to be a blessing in the body of Christ. Various functions. But all work towards one goal, so that Christ be glorified. And verse 6 through 8 here, he lists various ministries, various gifts. Some are given leadership. Some are given teaching. Some, are, some show hospitality. But all are graced. And, and therefore, Paul says, listen, brother, sister, serve humbly. Use your gifts, but don't think that you can replace other members. Uh, uh, don't just throw out others and think that you can survive by yourself or without that member. No, we need everyone here. Everyone is important in the church. Don't boast. Everyone must come together and say, listen, we're one body, and since God brought us here, you have what I don't, and I have what you don't. Let's all pray together, study scripture together, and see how we can impact each other for the glory of God. Not for the sake of competition, but for the sake of God's glory. So number one, God ordained you to be complete in the context of the body, not your individual self. Second, God ordained that each member has property in one another. God ordained that I have property in you. I have an investment in you. In other words, I can't despise another member in our church community because God willed for my growth and maturity in the body to depend on another person. And and as we go about this diversity, this diversity enriches each member of the body since we have this community, communion in the Holy Spirit. Gifts are of the Spirit. And, and, And here's the key. Our individual mindset is vital to the success of the entire church. Our individual mindset is vital to the success of the entire church. We must cultivate humility and not elevate ourselves above one another. Instead, think that others are more important than us. This is what it's all about. Remember, for the past number of sermons, what is the purpose of the church? What is the purpose of the church? What would you consider a successful church? A church that worships God but building each other up and by proclaiming the gospel in the community and all over the world. If you find that church who worships God by serving each other, by building each other up in the gospel, and who expand out and and preaches the gospel so that others can be impacted and brought in that's a successful church according to scripture well the more selfless the church is which means that me and you and you and you and you and you and and all of us together individually are walking in humility The more selfless the church is, the more powerful a tool it becomes in the hands of God to accomplish his purposes, both internally in the church and externally all over the world. We must put on this mindset of humility to see ourselves accurately. Don't boast if you're a pastor. Uh, It's not your doing, first of all. You're just one small part of the whole It's God's gift to you. Don't boast if you're a deacon. Serve diligently and rejoice that that you are allowed to be one small part of Christ's body. This great God who blessed us, he's using you in order to bless others. I mean, if you can't find anything more exciting, then I don't know what you need to be. Don't boast if you're a singer, if you're a Sunday school teacher, if you're an encourager, if you're praying like crazy, if you're a big donor, if you're an administrator, Oh, you're, you're a great servant and you're a great addition to the body of Christ. We need you in the body of Christ. But in your service acknowledge that, that you're just a tiny fraction of a whole graced by God to be a member of his body. So our first responsibility is when you consider the gospel, when you consider his great mercy, live surrender to God by renewing your mind. Second, in view of God's grace, your responsibility as a member is to serve humbly the body of Christ, being dependent on another. And number three, in view of God's grace and mercy, love genuinely the body of Christ. In view of God's grace and mercy, love genuinely the body of Christ. Now, having reminded the individual in this church to live, surrender to God, and to serve the body of Christ in humility. In these next verses, Paul focuses on the context in which these various gifts will be exercised and the reason why they are necessary. So sometimes we look at verses 3 and 4, we're saying, or 3 through 8, we're saying, this is just talking about gifts. Now, let's just figure out Um, what else Paul tells us? He says, let love be without hypocrisy, abhor evil, cling to what is good, and if you do all of these things, things will be fine and dandy. But he's saying this is the context in which we are to exercise these gifts. The reason why Paul focuses on the the positives, right, positive virtues here in verses nine all the way through the end of this chapter, really. We'll just focus through 13. The reason why he does that is because so often a, a church church like ours, a church full of sinners, tends to exhibit the very opposite of what Paul instructs here, right? I mean, we become hypocritical. We entertain sin. We don't treasure the good things. We we don't love each other. We elevate ourselves over others. We're lazy. We're slothful. We don't want to serve. We, we lose hope. We can't persevere in trials. We're not praying. Uh, we're so focused on ourselves that we don't see the needs of others. And, and we're not hospitable in fears that people walk through our doors, sit down, and get to know the real us. And so Paul says this, that as you consider yourself one small member of the body, remember that this is the context in which you are to serve one another. And, and and look what the first thing he says let love be without hypocrisy. As in other passages, Paul devotes primary place to love, like he does in 1 Corinthians, for instance. For love is to be the characteristic virtue in all that we do. But but what does he instruct against? Check this out. Look what he says. He doesn't just say love, love others. Love your neighbor, right? That's not what Paul says, but check it out. He, he goes to the quality of your love and he says, let love be without hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. What is hypocrisy? Hypocrisy is when I project on you something that I'm not. It's the fake me. I pretend to look a certain way when, when I'm not at the core of myself. I, I am a hypocrite, right? If I tell you one thing, but deep inside I know what I just told him is not true. Uh, in, in our setting here this morning, um, it's, it's when someone comes up to you and asks, hey, you know, uh, brother, how, how was your week? Um, and you respond something like, oh, man, good, good you know, had good week, um, same old thing, uh, you know, just doing life, family's good, the work is good, and man, God is good. And then you walk through, you sit on the bleachers there, or maybe you find yourself here on the floor, and you sit down, and um, and you listen to the word, and you sing, and And you make facial expressions as if the spirit is moving in you, and you just want to express your gratitude to the Lord, right? Then you sit down, you open up your notebook, you start taking notes from the sermon, and you're like, man, this is good. You say amen, and then after that, you go out, you smile at people, and you go home. But deep inside, you know that you're broken, that your family needs help, that you're struggling to pay bills, and you doubt whether God is really good. That's hypocrisy. What we pretend to be, right, when we pretend to be something that we're not, and and why this is so sinful, why this is so evil is because hypocrisy is the contradiction of truth. And that's why God especially hates it. And here's what Paul says here in our context. As you serve the body in the capacity that God hate, uh, graced you, let your love for another be genuine. And I believe that uh, ESV, your versions, they said, let love be genuine instead of like the Nasby took the negative side of that and said, let love be without hypocrisy. Let your love be genuine. Why? Number one, it's impossible to practice love, to give love without being genuine. It's impossible to practice love without being genuine. You're simply be pretending to care, pretending to serve, right? You're you're pretending uh, to do the work that God has allowed you without being fruitful in building another up. You're just going through the motion. It's impossible to practice love without being genuine. Number two, it's impossible to receive the love of another without being genuine. The church will not serve the real you. If all I know As you, from our two-minute conversation that we had, and all you said was, I'm good, my family is good, and everything is fine, but we don't have that time to talk to each other, to open up and to really know what's going on. Brothers, sisters, we would not know how to serve each other. And the intention, as good as they may be, will not actually address the issues, right? Why? Because we're hypocrites and we are serving each other as hypocrites you will reject all the love that you get why as a hypocrite because you know that what they're trying to do to you is not real you it does not matter to you you know your struggles and listen in view of god's mercy and grace think about this church should be a place where it's okay to be real where else you're going to be real Go out into the world, and the minute the world notices your weakness, they pounce on that. Take your workplace, take your school, take anything in the world. The minute the world figures out that Tim has a weakness in something, they will pounce on that. But we don't want things to be here like that in the church, right? It's okay to be genuine. In fact, we're, we're encouraged to be genuine. It's okay to come in to your small fellowship group and they say, you know what? I screwed up this week. I failed. I did not do what God told me to do in Romans 12. And look at the consequences that I'm living out, that my family is living out. It's okay to do that. I struggled with this, right? I struggled with that. Can you help me? Can you serve me? Where else are you going to go to ask for help? It's in the church. The church should be a genuine community which is blessed with people who care who are given special graces to teach, to encourage, and to lift up, and to bind the downcast and the broken, right? This is a place here. You won't find another place. And if we're hypocrites here, and if we can't open up to one another to deal with our sins and to help and to encourage each other, you're not going to find another place out in the world. It's got to be done right here. Now, this does not mean that we just, you know, kind of like come in and just whine and mope about our sin we don't deal with our sin. We just say, man, I'm a screw up from the beginning, so therefore, you know, God is good. He forgave me all, so um, it's okay. Paul says, no, abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. In the context of dealing and confessing sin and helping and encouraging one another, um, as, as, as church member, we're, we are called, right, to come in and, and to graciously instruct and to restore and to strengthen that believer in God's grace. We're called to guard each other from error. You do that with your kids. I do that with my kids. We spend a lot of time, maybe not myself, but, but Marina and, and the kids outside, just playing and riding bike, riding their scooters. And they're always on the street. And it will be foolish of me as a parent to say, you know what, keep the cones inside. You just ride that way, come back. And don't worry about the cars. We have a couple of close calls. Why? Because as parents, we got distracted ourselves. And God is good, but when we see the impending dangers, what do we do? We cry out, watch out! We either, what, wave the driver down or we weigh them down. Why? Because we care for them. But in our church sometimes we don't do that. Oh, this guy's a sinner, you know, he's just struggling. Um, that's fine, leave him there, you know, we hope that, no, we abhor evil, we help him out, we bring him up, we encourage him to, to what? To worship and to serve the Lord and to deal with whatever sin, but we don't look down upon him, why? Because that's genuine sinner. That's genuine sinner, we need to care for that. What prevents the church from, from becoming a gathering of hypocrites? It's our attention on the cross, that's what. Jesus died for our sins. We are no longer enslaved to sin, right? Yet yet we, we will struggle, right? And we all do. Um, not everything is okay. In fact, a lot of you guys came here this morning and you know that you're gonna have to leave this place and you're gonna have to deal with things. You're gonna have to deal with, with trials and you're gonna have to deal with your broken relationships. Not everything is okay, but how do we stop from being hypocrites and act like everything because of the cross christ did away with our sin christ did away with our sin we can bring it to each other and we can say brother pray for me but help me what do i do and that happens in our small community groups in our regional groups it happens here when we gather it happens up there by the table it happens everywhere as a body of christ and now the rest of the things that he says they just flow out of this command in verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Be devoted to one another in love. Be devoted to one another. Look what he says here. In brotherly love. I mean, this is, this is pretty crazy. This is pretty wild because the focus of our devotion and our love is not on action, but it's a feeling. You know what I'm saying? So, so Paul is saying that you, brother, have a feeling, like a love feeling towards another brother. We're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is getting too personal, right? This is getting uh, too practical for me. Um, I can just say that, you know, I, I, I love somebody. But no, he says, you have feelings for one another. Brotherly affection. I mean, we do for our wives and for our kids and perhaps for, I don't know, one other guy. But how many of you men can look to the opposite side of the room and look in the eyes of a brother and say, you know what, brother, I love you. I struggle with that. Paul here is commanding me and saying, listen, you need to love and you need to express and you need to feel. Don't just say it, but genuinely say it. Like, I love you. I have your best interests in mind. And I want to be real with you. Honor each other. If we truly love one another, we will honor each other. The pastors will recognize the grace of God in the members and will serve the body with joy. The members will recognize God's grace in the pastors and will submit to them in humility, knowing that they were raised for their good. Each member will care for one another, knowing they're just simply a small part of a large Christian community. In verse 11, he says, don't get tired of serving. Don't get tired of doing good. Don't be weary. Why are we so often as members of the body weary and tired? And we just want to throw our hands down and say, you know what? I need a sabbatical. I need to rest because our spirit is not stirred up and fired up by the spirit of God. We lose zeal. We forget that our doing and our serving is not really for the church. It is for the Lord. He says, serve the Lord. Be fervent in spirit. Have the zeal and passion and serve God. In in, in verse 12, he says, brothers and sisters, remain hope-filled. Remain hope-filled. Have you thought about the word hope? Ever thought about the word hope? The The very presence of hope, if you're thinking about hope, presupposes that at this very moment, things are not the way they should be. So you hope to get out of this situation into something better. And Paul says here, rejoice in hope. Rejoice in hope. Right? Um, And and, and then the next portion here says, rejoice in hope, persevere in tribulation. He understands. And, And a lot of us here in our congregation, we're dealing with Serious things right now. We're going through tribulation. We're going through trials, and and, and and Paul doesn't want to leave us right there. He wants to remind us that we have hope. We have hope that the Lord will take us through it because He's right in the middle of this trial. How do you persevere in your trials and rejoice in hope? He adds here: you devote yourself to prayer. Devote to prayer. Next, he says, you give and you you open doors of your home. When you love, honor, and serve others, you will see the needs of others and you want to try to, you're gonna to want to contribute in, in in the ways you can. I mean, it's great to hear among our churches in our Bible studies that a lot of you guys are pulling resources together, funds together to assist various families in our congregation who are going through just tough time can't work for, you know, cases of disability or other sickness. They, they can't provide for your family. And so when the church comes together and says, God, bless me with a great job. I'm going to give and I'm going to serve somebody. Why? Because maybe the Lord blessed you in this way so that you can be a blessing to others. And that's the way the church should function. How do you find out about the needs of others? Like you're probably sitting here. It's like, really? Someone, someone uh, is collecting some funds to help another and you have no idea uh, that this is taking place. How do you help? You what? Invite them over. Start inviting people. The one who's sitting right next to you, tell them, hey, you're coming over right, right after our short meeting. You're coming over home with me and we're gonna fellowship and we're gonna get to know the real us, right? You get to know the people. In addition, as a church, Brothers and sisters, we need to be really focused on doing outreach. Outreach to other people in our community. That's what hospitality is for. That's really the function of hospitality at the time that it was written. It was for those who came in who had no place. They stayed. The church served them. shared the gospel with them. Or if it was an itinerant preacher, he could come in, you can serve him. We need to start inviting people over to our homes. Spend time. Invite them over for dinner. Spend time with them in the parks. Let our kids or their kids hang out with us so that we can somehow impact them for the gospel. And this is everything that we're privileged to do as a body. So as we celebrate the gospel this morning by participating in communion... Rejoice and be glad that you are part of God's community and being part of the church. We all need to remember our responsibilities. In light of God's mercy and grace, number one, live surrender to God. Serve humbly and love genuinely the people God brought to this place. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the clarity of your word. And we pray, Lord, that you would take this word and that you would empower us to be real because you know us. There's nothing to hide. You see right through us. You know us better than we know ourselves. So help us to see the needs of a body and to serve. This is the responsibility. It starts with the right mind. So help us to renew our minds daily. And as we renew our minds, as we're focused on the gospel, we will most definitely be focused on others and not think so highly of ourselves. This is the only antidote to our pride the gospel. And so let us be bathed in it and bless us now even as we look and participate in this communion and be reminded that, man, we're not good enough. The only reason why we can do this is because of God's grace. We praise you and we ask these things in his holy name. Amen.